The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiegenfeld. This episode is going to be a little bit different. In light of our value of being hyper-local, I rarely interview folks that are from outside of the city of Anchorage or the state of Alaska. But today, all three guests are from outside of the state. Secondly, I typically interview folks that I don't know very well, but each of these guests are really good friends of mine. I've invited Dr. Ron Ruthruff from Seattle, Sparrow Edder Carlson from Seattle, and DJ Vincent from Salem, Oregon, to join me on the episode today. And while we've been looking at homelessness in Anchorage throughout this season, I couldn't think of a better group of people to talk to about creative responses, philosophy of care, social artistry, compassion, and relationships than this group. Often we get pretty myopic and we focus on just the nuances of the situation that's right in front of us and forget to consider what others might be doing in other places. And that's a good reason to talk to some folks from outside of Anchorage. Another good reason to talk to folks from outside of the city is that sometimes it's good to know that you're not alone. We can feel pretty isolated here in Alaska, and to know that others are experiencing what we are and seeking creative, human-centered, relational approaches to our neighbors struggling with homelessness can be encouraging. I also have a selfish reason for inviting Ron, DJ, and Sparrow to join me on this episode, and that's that I'm just really excited to introduce you all to my good friends. Here's our conversation. That I have yet to cross, and I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost, and I would search the wide world over for My name's Sparrow Edda Carlson. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and like all of us in this world, I'm many things. I am a mother. I am a neighbor. I am a sister. I identify as a social artist. Um, I am here with you today um, on this podcast because I spent the last 20 years of my life with intention towards my unhoused neighbors. And they have been my good teachers. Um, my adult life has really been spent as a direct response to what um, these precious people have, have taught me. Um, so I am the co-founder of a neighborhood living room here in Seattle called the Aurora Commons, which is uniquely situated in an area of Seattle where many folks sleep rough, have to engage in survival, street-based sex work, 
and polysubstance use for their survival. I'm the co-founder of the SHE Clinic, which stands for Safe, Healthy, Empowered. It's a medical clinic for survival street-based sex workers. I'm the founder of Sacred Streets, which is a training and innovation collaborative focused on equipping churches and communities to love their unhoused neighbors. And I now work for Upstream Change in a new government startup called the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. And I also must mention that I am a committed, active member of the Poor People's Campaign. Glad to be here, Joel, thank you. Well, I'll go next because that introduction, well, let me, uh, yeah, let me just say that is one incredible introduction. And I know Sparrow and I know that she, um, I'm not gonna say lives up to, but lives into all of those things, which is a huge gift to be on the podcast with her and with my friend DJ. My name is uh, Ron Ruthruff. The only reason you would have to call me Dr. Ron is if your grade's in jeopardy. Um, other than that, I would strongly recommend that you call me Ron. And uh, yeah, I uh, use he, him pronouns. And I also put in my little tag when I do Zoom uh, conversations, um, my zip code, 98118. <clears throat> 98118 is a specific zip code in Seattle. Uh, National Geographic a few years ago argued that it was the most equally diverse zip code in the United States. Um, that has been one of the incredible classrooms that I've been able to be in. And I think that classroom gives me far more authority than any degree to be a teacher. But that classroom has taught me a lot about race and justice and economics. But prior to that, and probably more pertinent to this conversation, uh, for 27 years, I ran a drop-in center um, for street-involved youth. Those folks uh, didn't run um, to the street, but they, run they ran from a bad situation, and the streets are where they ended up. Uh, and that, that um, 27 years was incredible. I was actually asked to write a book on how to work with street kids. And I said, no, thank you. I don't think I can do that, but I can write a book on how they've shaped me, both theologically and in a very practical way, um, a, a, a way of service delivery and a way of caring for them um, in ways that honor and respect the fact that they're not only <clears throat> uh, wounded in many ways, but they are profoundly resilient and smart and creative and um, they are an asset that is uh, underutilized and underrecognized uh, because of some of the ways in which they need to behave and some of the ways in which they uh, are perceived. But that's what brings me here. So thank you, Joel, for inviting me. Well, definitely humbled to be one of the squares, DJ Vincent, uh, he, him pronouns, and I am finding my belonging currently as a, a son and a husband and a father. And then I would move to being a pastor um, in the city of Salem. Um, in this community, I've had the chance to be a pastor among those finding themselves unsheltered for the last 15 years. And we call that effort Church at the Park. I get to build other partnerships and collaborations through the Salem Leadership Foundation. I get to serve as the deputy director there where we connect people of faith and people of goodwill together. And then um, it is a great source of joy and belonging to be a part of the International Street Psalms community where I get to serve as a senior fellow and find a lot of life 
in the theological conversations we get to have. So looking forward to this conversation. Thank you everybody for introducing yourselves. Normally I would ask you what your involvement is working with um, those that are facing um, being unhoused, but you all sort of worked that in into your intros. So, you know, one less question to ask. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask a couple of follow-up questions to each one of you, um, just so folks can get to know you a little bit better. Sparrow, I've been wanting to ask you this question for a long time. I've heard you introduce yourself as a social artist um, many times. And every time I'm like, man, I wanna ask her about that. And then I don't. <laughs> So now I get a chance because you're sort of like a captive audience. Like, what does it mean for you to be a social artist? What do you mean by that um, when you say that you're a social artist? Yeah. Oh, Joel, thank you so much for starting with this question. I do identify as a social artist. And I'll tell you a little bit about what social artistry is, as well as why um, it's an important orientation for me. Excuse me. Um, the field of social artistry was formally birthed by uh, Dr. Jean Houston. Her main body of work uh, for the past 30 years uh, was really focused on researching human capacities. Hmm. Um, and as far as I understand, social artistry as a concept and a profession was shored up um, as an active response to that research. It was a need that she saw um, within this field of research. So um, to put it plainly, the social artist is one who brings the perspective, wisdom, fresh vision, passion, and the tireless dedication of the artist to the social arena. So it's a commitment to bringing new ways of thinking, being, and doing to social and systemic challenges. Thus, the social artist medium is the human community. Um, and the lived out mission of the social artist is always towards gen generative co-creating, birthing, midwifing, if you will, um, the innovative solutions needed to improve and heal troubling conditions within our community. So um, I could go on and on about this for me, but Joel, for me, it's the commitment to this identity is really grounding and, and really necessary. Um, like I said, it offers me a sense of orientation, um, a daily Eucharistic turning, if you will, a foundational underpinning that keeps me awake to the possible in the midst of so much unnecessary death and injustice in this work. Um, and to me, it's a moral commitment to imagination, to reverence, to innovation, and to the daily discipline of hope in the midst of so much, like I said, death and injustice. So, yeah, I, I, I can say more, but. I know you, you referenced your work there. And I know one of the things that we've talked about recently is that you all in your role in Seattle just got done doing kind of a comprehensive oh. study of, of, um, of the whole issue of homelessness and those that are serving folks that are facing that in the city. What was some of the things that came up? I know you probably can't give in like a whole report on the whole report, but like, what were some of the things that came up as you all took a look back and started surveying the whole landscape of what's happening in Seattle around this issue? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's much to say here in this response. Um, so I'll, I'll before before I kind of dive in, um, I, I think it's important to offer some some color and context. So just to give you um, a bit of an understanding about what King County Regional Homelessness Authority is, um, 
again, as I mentioned in my intro, it's it's a new government agency. So it, it's it's pretty amazing to be a part of a new government startup. It's pretty rare. Um, and KCRHA, I'm going to say KCRHA for short because it's a mouthful, um, was formed out of an acknowledgement that our homelessness response system, as all of us know all too well, is deeply siloed, complex, malnourished, and requires a coordinated body to sync, animate, and improve our efforts as a whole, right? So the Regional Homelessness Authority is that consolidated homelessness response here in King County. So when we um, formed, this is about 12 months ago, with the forming of KCRHA came the inheritance of all of the contracts and homelessness databases, such as HMIS that were housed all over and under different roofs across King County, all of those contracts and all of those databases came under one roof, our roof at KCRHA. So for the first time ever, we were able to look across our systems and databases and really get a clear understanding as to what the regional response is. What is the health of it? Where are the gaps in care? Um, so I'll, I'll highlight a few things that we found, like you asked, Joel, and, um, and of course they're gonna be like a direct reflection of what many cities in, in this country are facing. Anchorage, of course, not to be excluded, but I think it's important to, to uplift that um, one of the first analyses that we did as an agency was, um, was something called the point in time count. Now, this is something that I'm sure DJ, I know Ron, I'm sure Joel, you're all familiar with the point in time count. Um, it, it's, it's a national HUD requirement. Um, so, excuse me, so the housing and urban development, it's a requirement for any jurisdictions receiving federal funding. Most cities participate in the pit count, but for the first time ever, ever excuse me, we went a big bit rogue in our methodology here in Seattle, not because we wanted to be cool, but because we know and it's widely understood that the pit is an undercount. So this year we received approval from HUD to do our unsheltered count, not in one night, but do interviews, qualitative interviews over a whole month. So in the month of March, we were able to do 600 interviews. And from that, we found there to be an estimated 13,000 368 individuals in King County sleeping rough outside. We then looked across our databases to find our sheltered count, which that means anyone who's sleeping within our, our, um, our shelter system and, um, and put those numbers together for 13,368. And then our other cross-system analysis found that at least 40,871 individuals experienced homelessness at some point during the year of 2021. Ugh, so stark to share that with you all. I wanna highlight also that it should be no surprise, but 25% of the folks that were experiencing homelessness identified as black African-American and that's juxtaposed to King County's population being only 7% Black African-American. 
Same with our Native Indigenous community. 9% of people experiencing homelessness identify as Native Indigenous. I'm sure it's the same in Anchorage, similar. They make up only 1% of King County. So when we looked at our system landscape, how did like one of the wealthiest cities in the whole nation fare, not well, <laughs> to highlight a few things, um, our carceral system, of the 15,000 individuals that were booked last year, 7,000 identified as homeless. Less than 4% receive any jail release planning. We lost 216 precious individuals. They died outside last year. 48% of those deaths were from fentanyl overdoses, Joel. <laughs> I could go on and on. <laughs> I'm not sure what else you want me to say, but we talk about we only have 34 medical respite beds for all of King County. That's almost 14,000 individuals sleeping outside, sleeping rough, and only 34 beds for them to access to get the medical care that they rightly deserve as precious human beings. So deep breath, hand on the heart. I say all this just to highlight that we have a hemorrhaging system in the midst of a time where we have the highest rates of homelessness ever. Um, yeah, I laid that before you. <laughs> know that it's greeted, unfortunately, and known all too well across our country, but those are just some of the things that I wanted to highlight today. Yeah, you absolutely, as you mentioned, hit, it, hit on themes that as we've gone through this season, other guests have hit on in Anchorage, the, the racial disparities, the, the lack of services, the fact that the, the system's really overloaded. Um, so it's not encouraging to hear that Seattle's in the same position, but in a way it, 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 it fosters some solidarity, I think, of facing very similar issues. So thanks for sharing with that. We'll, we'll be back with you in just a little bit. Ron, you mentioned your introduction this book that you uh, proposed writing about what you learned from the years that you were working with youth on the street, the 30 or so years that you were doing that. What does that, what does that book look like? I know I've read it, but I'm sure listeners maybe haven't or haven't run across it. It's called the least of these lessons learned from kids on the street. Um, but tell us a little bit about what did you learn as you spent time with youth on the streets in Seattle for all those years? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I want to just say thank you to Sparrow. The, the scope of that problem <clears throat> is immense. And um, I want to be a social artist, too, because there has to be a way that we enter into this work imaginatively. And I think um, that's what was the motivation behind the book. Uh, while, you know, there's many pervasive problems, which we will talk about among people that are unhoused, um, I, I love I love that Sparrow started with the fact that we were actually able to to widen the the bandwidth of the the count um because i want us to first of all recognize that unhoused people don't have the luxury of standing in one place long enough to be counted i mean th that in itself speaks to a very precarious position uh, to be in and so yeah, I learned all of those things in my book. I learned that kids on the street run from a bad situation. They don't run to the streets. The streets are where they end up. <clears throat> I learned 
that the it's a process uh, homelessness in general among and and kids that are that are homeless it's a it's it's a cocktail of personal challenges and public failures it's family disintegration it's addiction it's mental health but it's also coupled with a lack of affordable housing um underemployment all lead to individuals sort of falling through the cracks and ending up on the street. And specifically when we're talking about adolescents, it's a horribly failed Department of Social and Health Services that doesn't know how to create a continuum of care for young people that are coming from deeply fragmented social and family systems and don't have a net to fall into. So we learned that in the, and I wrote that in the book. I mean, there's all sorts of lessons to be learned in that. But the other thing that I want to tell you that I learned is how incredibly creative and courageous and resilient these young people are. Kids that would apologize to me for not making one of their 13 or 14 foster care placements um, not making that successful, like it was in their power to make it successful. The kid that's apologizing because he knows friends that have been in 26 or 27 different foster care placements. And just to couple this research or this uh, work that I did in the book um, with Sparrow's work, we found that three things um, cause failure within that Department of Social Health Service system in regards to young people under 18 being on the street. And that is multiple placements, sibling separation, and lack of cultural competency. So this is, and we also learned that while kids of color <laughs> are the least represented in the system as far as social workers, they're the quickest to be deferred or, or referred out of their homes and into a placement. So when I talk about, when I talk about um, multiple placements. I'm talking about kids that literally are in 17, 18 different foster homes. When I'm talking about sibling separation, we know, we know that you need your family or your what's left of your family around you, but far few placements can actually provide that opportunity. And the lack of cultural competency, I mean, that just goes back to this idea that kids of color are disproportionately taken away from their parents and put in foster care. And they're usually put in foster care that isn't part of their own community or part of their own neighborhood. And all of that leads to, so in the midst of that dynamic, the beautiful part about the book for me was being able to articulate how well those kids understood their own plight and how willing they were to engage in a theological anthropology, and I really mean that that term, a real a real robust theological anthropology that didn't give up on their own purpose or their own imagination or their own vision or their own hope. So to take all that away from kids and for them still to believe that they are becoming, that's what I learned. And I know you got other questions, so I'll shut up about the book. And don't go out and buy it on the podcast because it'll wreck my motto, over dozens sold. <laughs> so I know you're a learner, and we just heard a little bit about what you learned, um, and also that you're a best-selling book author, over a dozen sold. So like that's, that's, really, that's really good. Um, but I also know you're a teacher as well, and that one of your roles over the years, and still is, 
is helping folks in the community understand um, the world of those that are facing homelessness that are outside, that are sleeping outside. When you do that teaching, what are the things you want people to know um, when you have a chance to kind of give that give that talk? Well, what are the points that you're trying to make? Sure. How about if I offend everybody all at once here? You That's know, okay, let, let's start with there. Liberals need to admit that homeless encampments and homelessness or the unhoused, it's not an issue of just personal freedom. <laughs> and conservatives need to admit that the solutions cost money. And this is one of the problems that, that we sit with this is that it is it is not a choice to be unhoused. It's actually a lack of choices. And if we begin to think creatively about how we manufacture or create choices, it it's going to create something far more comprehensive. I mean, what Sparrow said about 50% <laughs> of of the people that are incarcerated actually are some level are unhoused and are re-entering sort of this liminal space when they get out of jail. And we expect them not to re-offend. We expect the recidivism rate to be under 75%. It's just, it's not even, it's not even good math. So, so that's what I want people to know. I want people to know that, that right. I mean, absolutely. We've got unhoused people that, and and we don't, and, and to be quite, uh, to be quite candid, we don't know how much of the trauma of, of being unhoused actually exasperates mental health issues. So to say that all the folks on the street are mentally ill or all the folks are addiction. Well, I have plenty of people in AA programs and I love this saying, they say, you know what? Alcohol was never my problem. It was the solution that just stopped working. Well, we need to begin to think creatively about giving people other solutions so that they don't need to medicate themselves and so that they can live in a place where actual um, serenity is possible. So that's what I try to teach towards is the complexity of problem, but also the complexity in regards to trying to create solutions. It's not as easy as get that I'll, I'll be I'm really careful about my language here. Um, get that freaking tent off my street. It's not that simple. All right, DJ, I haven't forgotten about you um, <laughs> in the other square on my screen. So you work for the Salem Leadership Foundation, which maybe at first hearing for folks in Salem, Oregon, not for folks in Salem, they would understand, but you're in Salem, Oregon. So folks know that, but doesn't necessarily sound like a social services provider to say a leadership foundation. So mm. would you help me and listeners know what is a leadership foundation and how did that um, draw you all in your organization into working with the unhoused, your unhoused neighbor neighbors there in Salem? Yeah. So leadership foundation, um, people of faith, people of goodwill working together for the health of the city. And for us in Salem, that's neighborhood by neighborhood. One thing I've learned it from others is that lives are only transformed through relationship. And um, as we're talking about homelessness, you know, people don't become homeless when they run out of money. They become homeless when they run out of relationships. Um, and all those things have cascaded in their lives. And so when we bring things together in Salem, we're, we're talking about 
three things. So engaging leaders of faith and goodwill around our biggest challenges. And then we're looking to build the capacity of other organizations and then develop these joint initiatives like we've been hearing about from Sparrow. So pit count grabbed my attention because that's where all this started for me. I volunteered to do one day of interviews in 2005. And I ended up, you know, having a lot of my judgments and preconceptions as, you know, uh, a white male privileged pastor who, you know, would have people just stop in at the church. Um, a lot of my, you know, understanding started to get shifted on that day of the point in time count and interviewing 20 folks and hearing their real stories about how hard life had been and about all the trauma that they had experienced. And so I started, you know, with a fire in my belly, like trying to figure out what this was going to mean for the church that I was pastoring. Then we started doing some potlucks in a park. Um, but you soon start see to see that, you know, food and blankets isn't the way that you necessarily create life transformation. So we started getting more relationally vulnerable with our own advocacy. Um, we realized that every, you know, every agency is actually trying to do good work, but the, the trauma in someone's life ends up with them pretty shut down to a lot of those institutional efforts. And so they need real people to build real ongoing trust and then actually, you know, take them to appointments and hold their hand to things. And to be honest, um, up until the pandemic, I, I pretty much, you know, in a voluntary way, was leading an effort here in Salem where we were getting, you know, church people to become kind of advocates for unsheltered folks and take them to appointments. And we, we saw a few things happen through that over the time before the pandemic. I know in recent years, and maybe this is since the pandemic, but you all have done a really good job of gathering like partners from lots of different sectors in the city. So governmental, faith-based mm -hmm. folks, social services, all these different folks, just concerned citizens. What has that looked like for you? How did you bring that about? Like, I know you're talking about relationally responding to our neighbors who are facing homelessness, but it sounds like a really relational approach as well. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you brought this group together in Salem. Yeah. So the great thing about Salem is it's only, you know, 10% of the size of most cities. <clears throat> Therefore, our challenge is about 10% of the size. So say 33,000 um, instead of 30,000, 3,000 unsheltered folks. So then if you've got, you know, 200 nonprofits and you've got 200 congregations, you just start making calls and building partnerships. And so for the 10 years pre-pandemic, we would do these community-wide health connects. And so we'd bring like 50 partners together um, in one place. And so that was an annual thing. And then we started, you know, building our capacity to do that more monthly, these, these health connects for folks. <clears throat> and, and then again, the pandemic, you know, created so much harm. Um, but out of the, all that pain, we were able to leverage the, the goodwill of working with the city, working with the county, working with these nonprofits. And so 
where our mayor had said, we're, we're never doing, you know, the shelters you see in Portland or Eugene, and we're, we're not going to, you know, do safe parking like they do down in Eugene. They got a little more creative um, when, when everything was shut down. And so we were able to get 20 churches to open up their parking lots to, to safe parkers. And we've opened up a few of these micro shelter communities. Again, like you say, it was only because of a lot of partnership and learning how to work through the government systems and, and how they have a lot to offer if you're real patient. Well, we'll come back to some of the solutions that you you mentioned. There are some of the responses, maybe, maybe not solutions um, in just a minute. But I we've been asking this question of guests all throughout the season. So this is the this will be the 13th, I think, episode in this series. We've been asking folks about um, we've been using an image called a hydra. So it's a snake with multiple heads. Um, in mythology, usually there's one head that's immortal, but I would say in this sense, it feels like in some ways, all these heads feel like they're, they're, they're somewhat indestructible, but we've been asking folks, what are, if, if you had to say what the heads of the Hydra are of homelessness, what would you list off as some of the, the things, and you can think of it as like, what are all the, the intersections between different things in in the community, and maybe we've already started naming them as you all have answered. We start thinking about mental health care and and some of the other things that you've mentioned. But what are the height the heads of the Hydra? And I know it'll take one of you being the bold person to jump out, but and answer it. But how do you see what the heads of the Hydra of homelessness are? Well, I'll start because yeah. my friends already answered it. <laughs> and one of the heads of the Hydra that I see is for 27 years, you know, I worked in a street outreach organization that received no public money. And what was very interesting is how affirmed we were for that. I mean, I don't want to, you know, start crying on, uh, on your podcast, but, you know, we all had to take a vow of poverty to work there for 27 years with no public money. And people were really, you know, our board members continued to pat us on the back for taking financial salaries that they would never take. But, you know, we served with no public money. But we were, but I do want to say this, we were utterly dependent on public money <laughs> that were that could to provide the kind of network of services that we needed to provide. And I think what happens is in this problem is that some of us that are more faith-based get very myopic in our view and go, well, the government shouldn't do this. The government shouldn't do this. It should be the churches. Well, if you take a look at how many churches there are in America, and you take a look at how many homeless young people there are in America, you're right. The church should take care of it. If each church in America would adopt two homeless adolescents into their congregation and give them everything they need as far as scaffolding and infrastructure, we could solve that problem. Same thing with hunger in America, right? Like when we start measuring the amount of poverty, what would it take for each church in America to chip in a million or two dollars? That's one of the hydras, the inability to understand the complexity of the problem. And it takes a deep commitment to partnership, public and private, to solve this problem. And I think on both sides of the spectrum, they don't want to admit that they need the other. The church <laughs> doesn't need the federal government. And the federal government is, and I would argue in some cases, rightfully so, cautious about this church. So that's just one thing. But I think that's already been named. So we want to say that's one of the systemic problems that continue to create this mm -hmm. 
complexity in this mess. Hmm. I appreciate that, Ron. I appreciate that. I think, I think how I found myself reading that, uh, first of all, thank you, Joel, for this question. Um, it was a deeply powerful question for me to sit with. Um, I think it's, it's a non-distracting question. Like it makes you really get to the meat and the heart of the matter. Um, and I don't think we talk about this enough. So thank you. And to piggyback off Ron, I would name it as the lie of scarcity. I, I have a list here. I'm going to just go through my list here. Okay, guys. The lie of scarcity. Two, housing affordability and stock. Three, racism. Four, poverty. Five, death dealing policies. Six, a distorted moral narrative. Seven, the lack of a communal narrative. And eight, whiteness. As I say it, I'm like getting bubbles in my belly. We are so exhausted, we can't even do the good hard work. We can't even do the good hard work of like, of stopping and thinking about all of these interlocking injustices. It's deep, it's deep, it's deep, it's evil. Those, that's my answer, that's my answer right there. Heads of Hydra, great question, Joel. DJ, did they leave any for you? No, I can only amplify um, that narrative of, of isolation. Um, so housing first can be a narrative of, of isolation where some folks are only gonna be healthy and whole in supported community that happens in supported housing, that happens in even a, a healthy, you know, therapeutic um, program environment. And, you know, you're hearing on high, we just need to get everybody in their own apartment, which is physically impossible in this nation, unless we want to um, warehouse people in tiny cubicles. And it's not the the shalom, the wholeness that we're looking for in terms of people who have desperate needs for relationship and community. And so sometimes the goal that's being stated isn't a very healthy goal when we need belonging and support for every person, regardless of the trauma they've experienced. Hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you all, and, and you're outside of Anchorage, and that's not something we do a lot of on this podcast. We have kind of a philosophy where we're kind of hyper-local. Um, but I wanted to be able to hear from other places. I think it's helpful to start to begin to think of um, where are other folks creatively um, working to be a social artist, honestly, like in the world. Um, and, and you are some of those folks that come to mind because I know you and have known you for a long time. So just to, so you get to know a little bit of the context in Anchorage, I mean, before, before the pandemic, the city had very little, the city was not involved very much in homeless response. Um, there, there were agencies in town that were doing that. During the pandemic, we ended up using our 5,000 seat hockey arena as an emergency shelter. Then this summer, they closed to that after nearly two years, put everybody in a public campground that didn't want to go to any of the other solutions that they were offering. Some debate about how well that was handled, but 
And now those folks are back in the hockey arena and they've just, the mayor's office has requested that the capacity be doubled um, for the remainder, the, the allowed capacity. Not that there's going to be 10,000 people there. Currently they were allowed to have somewhere around 160 to 200. And they want to up that to like 350. So that's sort of in it. And, and there's a lot of other good work going on around that, but that's been the narrative that's been kind of in the media over the last year or so here, or last two years here. It's been a little bit of this ping-ponging of moving folks around um, and, a, and a kind of fight between the mayor's office, the assembly, providers, everybody's got kind of a different idea of what needs to be done. But what I often don't hear, at least in the media, and I think this is happening in the corners, but not so much like out loud where people are seeing is, what are some of the creative ideas that are out there for ways that, that that people can be helped and be brought into the kind of enfolding kind of community that you all have been talking about? So DJ, I'm going to ask you to kind of start us. Um, I know that you guys have gotten involved in some pretty creative mm. things in Salem. So I'd love to have you just talk about some of the ways that you're helping folks find community, but also find safe places to be and to, to stay. Yeah. So I'll just say, Small is beautiful. And uh, so our three things are relationship-based navigation, um, emergency sheltering, and workforce development. That's kind of like where our creativity is. And so for each of those, um, we're trying to create these micro-shelter communities that are kind of based on individual vulnerabilities. So we have just a family space, we have just a young adult space, and then uh, a vulnerable adult space. I could see us hopefully having kind of like a 55 plus space because of the, you know, the universe of needs that is connected there and um, our staff having specific capacities. But our, our staff's number one job each day is to see people and build relationships. And so that is true through and through in terms of how people are experiencing us. And the fact that we have, you know, we're serving over 200 people a night and we have 300 people on the wait list. And unfortunately, we have like a Taj Mahal UGM with, you know, open beds every night um, because again, there's just higher barriers and, um, things that aren't, they just aren't hitting the mark in terms of that social artistry that makes people feel a sense of beauty and belonging in those spaces. Um, again, I think the workforce development piece works in there because we're connecting people with, you know, volunteer opportunities they're choosing and then workforce opportunities they're looking forward to or experiencing. Um, about half the people who work with us and for us have lived experience with homelessness. So it creates a certain type of culture in, in what we're doing that makes it feel like an us rather than a provider and way down here are the people who, who need services. And so uh, I wanna leave plenty of space for others to to jump in. Well, I'm going to ask you just one real quick follow-up question, DJ. Could you um, just tell listeners kind of what does your micro shelter, what do your micro shelter communities look like? I know you guys have done some stuff around safe parking as well. Like, um, and then also I know I'm familiar with the work at the church of the park, which I know in some ways it covers both those things, but could you talk just a little bit about the specifics of those, those, those responses that you all have been doing? Yeah. So the micro shelter community 
um, like you in Anchorage, we opened up a pavilion first and we marked out tent spaces and we had 50 spaces and then the pavilion was being shut down. So we got um, 40 of the, the shelters from Tacoma and we, we put those things up. And so the key to the little community is that it's safe. So there's staff on site 24 seven. There's just residents on site. People come and go as they please, but they don't have like parties or visitors there. And then um, it's then sanitary. So we have laundry trailers, shower trailers, um, that just the sanitation people can get ready and go to work, whatever that looks like for them. And then supported. So everybody has case management services. And we've been super fortunate that we were able to set up two shelters on site that are basically healthcare doctor's offices throughout the week. So we're bringing services right to people. And so because of that, we're seeing the beauty of in the last two years through those micro shelter communities, we're seeing about two people transition to more permanent housing each week. So that's a significant amount of folks, about 200 folks transition. I mean, in the same time, we haven't had a month without a funeral either to connect with what Sparrow is saying. The population is very vulnerable, a lot of morbidity happening, a lot of pain for our staff um, to work through the, the celebrations as well. So then the safe parking um, is where churches open up their sites so people can park vans or RVs. And then we try to engage the church to offer, you know, positive encouragement. But we've then set up a day center site where people can come and do their laundry there and get case management services and other food supports during the day. That's how we've been using our long-term building that you're familiar with, Joel. People can come and get kind of walk up if they're not being served in a shelter yet and they can come there if they're safe parking throughout the city. Thanks for sharing that. I, I love the model of just taking the services to where folks are at already and making it really, really easy to access. Sparrow, earlier this year, I was down in Seattle with you and we went on a little bit of a tour of what some of the responses are in Seattle. And um, I'd love to hear from you about those a little bit. One of the things that I found really interesting, especially was the tent city um, and the Aurora Commons. So if you can talk about both those approaches, I think those are um, maybe things that we haven't been thinking about in Anchorage at all, models that look like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I may, I just really want to share about a couple other models of care that I think just are not um, uplifted enough. Um, and I know I'm going to see a lot of head nods <laughs> um, during, during this section. I think, um, it, it, you know, um, it's not talked about enough how um, pets are such a crucial, crucial part of our friends and neighbors that sleep outside. And they're right. They're right to hold on to their pets um, as they navigate this gnarly system and try to get um, the, the health and help that they rightly deserve as human beings. So it's extremely problematic that many of our programs across this country do not allow pets. And that's often what keeps women in domestic violence situations. It's often what, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but I want to uplift a really beautiful <laughs> baritone. Um, I want to uplift a really beautiful um, service here in Seattle, um, a clinic called Doney Co, D-O-N-E-Y Co, C-O-E. 
It is a free clinic that sees both animals and their owners that are unsheltered at the same time. So in order for you to have your pet seen, which is most often, and I know again, I'll get head nods here. Most often folks that are sleeping unhoused or unsheltered or rough, they will put their pet before any of their own needs. And it's beautiful, right? So, so to have a clinic model where if you want your pet to be seen, you also have to be seen in a really non-judgmental, safe um, uh, way. It, it's been a really stunning model of care. Um, so I can't quote numbers or anything, but they're a partner of ours. And um, I just want to uplift, um, uh, I, I want to uplift that model for folks across the country to, to begin to think about. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up, Joel, and, and this is not in Seattle, but by God, if I die and it's not in Seattle, then I don't know. I don't know, do something, but, but, but I want to talk about safe consumption spaces. I want to talk about safe consumption spaces and, and the need for safe consumption spaces. Safe consumption spaces, for those of you who don't know, are places, and they, they do not exist in, in the United States. Excuse me, there is, one, there is one space that does exist in San Francisco. It just opened up. But the model that most folks know about is in Lower East Side, Vancouver. And it's called um, Insight. It's been around for years. Safe consumption spaces are places where folks can go and consume drugs with nurses, support, accompaniment right there with them. Cannot overemphasize enough that methamphetamine, opioid, all of the drugs that are on our market right now are extremely inconsistent and extremely fatal. Folks cannot change, they cannot get well if they are dead. So in these safe consumption spaces, just even this last year, 3000 individuals that are sleeping outside came into a space to safely use these drugs. 3000 of them had an overdose, not one fatal overdose, not one. They work. <laughs> um, I am tired of losing people to unnecessary death. And I think it's high time we begin both as the church um, and as folks that are that are leaders in our community um, to talk about um, accompaniment and working for these kinds of models of care um, within our communities. So safe consumption spaces, pet and owner clinics. And I'd love to go on and on, but I'll pass it over to Ron. Before we go to Ron, I really do want you to just talk a little bit, Sparrow, about what is Aurora Commons? What's the model oh. that you all set up there? And then what does, and, and because we talked about micro sheltering, I won't have you talk about that again, because I know that's a an approach that's being used in Seattle as well. Um, Absolutely. And also, what does the tent city um, kind of movement in Seattle look like? Because I think that's a model that oh, for most folks yeah. is really off the radar completely. Yeah, yeah, I would love to highlight that. So I'm sorry, you asked me to do that and I got all fired up in a different direction. Um, yeah, I, love so I, will say, <laughs> I will say, I was so glad to be able to take you um, to Tent City, uh, to Tent City 3 um, during your last visit. I, I cannot not give a shout out uh, to um, my friend, Michelle Marchand, not that she'll be listening, but I have to say her name because she is a woman that has been fighting with linked arm in arm 
as a woman with, with lived expertise who started because of her need for her own shelter, this coalition um, of tent cities. Um, so they were started meant 30 years ago when um, folks came together and said, if you're not gonna care for us, we're gonna care for us. And, and they set up sanctioned encampments, excuse me, when they started, they were not sanctioned encampments. Started um, setting up, uh, and, and you might've been here back then, Ron, huh? Um, so you might be able to speak to this better than myself, but, um, but these encampments were started 30 years ago. So they're actual literal tents that these communities set up together. They're people that are, it's started by folks with lived expertise, with lived experience, and it's run by folks with lived expertise. So this community of individuals with tends to be between 30 and 100 individuals that are sleeping rough, that come together and set up their tents together, it's self-governed. They sign a document saying that they will not be using any substances when they're staying in these locations and they care for one another. So they have a deep commitment to every three months move. And so what we do is we work with them. They work with community members to find local churches or local areas that can host them for three months. They go and set up these tiny, excuse me, these tent cities. And then every three months they pick up and they move on. Um, we look forward to the day where they no longer have to look for a new space. It's exhausting to have a model this way, but it's extremely crucial. Um, and and um, I'm very grateful um, for uh, their leadership in their city and the ways that they've, they've been patient with me and led me. So I'm happy to talk more about that, but that gives you an overview. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna redirect one more time, Sparrow. Aurora Commons. Aurora Commons, oh my delight, the love of my life. Happy to, happy to talk about it. Um, so in brief, um, Aurora Commons is a neighborhood, we call it a neighborhood living room. Um, and uh, it is located, um, as I mentioned before in my intro, um, on a highway in North Seattle, where there is a lot of folks that are experiencing homelessness. And it was birthed from a community of people that were living with intention um, towards building relationships with their unhoused neighbors, myself being, being one of those individuals. So um, we started with, I, I think I just wanna share one of the things that is really, um, that I like to, to encourage people to think about if they're thinking about birthing a nonprofit day center or community center or neighborhood living room. We started with only one thing and that was a communal kitchen. So folks can come into the Aurora Commons open the refrigerator, take out food, and make their own food. So we're never bored, right? It adds some complexity, but that's part of what I, I think is our role in being a social artist and in creating safe spaces of hospitality where folks even have the opportunity to choose, Ron said earlier, lack of choices, to re-remember what it means to have choice just by even pulling out an egg and cracking it. It's unbelievable what that does for a person. That was the only thing we started from. From that, and now 12 years later, um, everything we've, we've birthed has been a direct response to what um, our unhoused neighbors have taught us. Like I mentioned before, our she clinic, um, we now see over 100 individuals a day. I celebrate the day we go out of business. Um, and uh, it is just one of the most beautiful places that really focuses on a covenant of reciprocity. 
and really tries to help folks unlearn kind of this over and above systemic, systemized approach, um, charity-driven model of care. So it's a lot of work that we hope that you never see or feel happening. We hope you walk into the commons and you don't know who's working and who's not working. Um, it's, it is a, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And anyone could call me or text me and talk to me about it. Happy to talk more about it with anyone and everyone. Thanks, Sparrow. Ron, I'm gonna to turn to you. I know you're, you're sort of out of the direct service world now. <clears throat> but I know you're still um, thinking a lot about it and have thought about it a lot over the years. So I would love to hear you just talk about like philosophy of care. We often hear terms thrown around like high barrier, low barrier, housing first, those type of things. When we think about responses to homelessness, what are some of the things philosophically, and I know we've been kind of doing this throughout the whole conversation already, but what are some of the things philosophically folks should be thinking about um, when they start thinking about what it looks like to respond I'm too early. I love that Sparrow started with uh, what is grossly called, you know, drunk housing or whatever, you know, people want to call, you know, uh, housing in which people can continue to use uh, and and participate in a safe, a safer way. I mean, the truth is, statistically, we just need to know research says that it does bear itself out to be a safer place for people to be, for people to use. And uh, my AA friends tell me all the time that AA isn't based on um, recruitment, it's based on attraction. So the very nature of feeling like you can recruit people into sobriety is a problematic, I think it's a problematic frame from the very beginning. And, and when Sparrow speaks of that, um, when DJ talks about relationships, what they're really talking about is this idea of low barrier service delivery. And what I mean by that is services should be hard, easy to get into and hard to get kicked out of. And we do the exact opposite in our systems. We make it incredibly difficult for people to access services and really easy to screw it up. Like you can screw it up with, you know, one extra person in your apartment. Now, you know, try doing that in a communal living situation where you're utterly dependent on your eight or nine relatives. If you get kicked out of your section eight housing, who's gonna house you next? And you expect them to believe and trust more in that system than they do their very own relative. So New Horizons did some things that were very low barrier at the very beginning. Like we decided to not do an intake form. Interesting. I find it very interesting that we provide all these intakes. Like when I go in to buy a pair of shoes or I go in to um, get a, buy a coat, the first question people ask me is, have you been sexually abused? Have you ever been involved in drug trade? No, they don't ask me any of those questions. They just let me consume because I'm a consumer. And so we thought, well, let's let kids walk into our drop-in center and self-select. So we asked them very simple questions like, what do you like to be called? And what do you like for breakfast? Because if you're walking into our drop-in center, before we ask you questions that are, are, are deeply personal, we wanna know, do you like French toast or frosted flakes? And once you become part of this community, and once you begin to negotiate in a relationship with somebody, just like all of us, our level of intimacy, right? Moves forward with our level of commitment. 
And I find it very, in fact, what it does is it's actually counterproductive. I think it teaches people that are unhoused inappropriate relationship pacing. I find that those people disclose way too quickly, way too much stuff because the system has told them unless you share that. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about giving people an opportunity to self-select into services with very low barriers. And New Horizons did that. And I just, and I want to mention this because Sparrow did, and I love it. Um, I learned from people like Norm Riggins, the founder of Operation Nightwatch, his, his uh, successor, Rick Reynolds, who didn't die. Norm has passed away, but Rick Reynolds just retired. Greg Alec, who ran the Matt Talbot Center. These are guys that taught me how to create low barrier services and allow people to self-select. We even let kids choose their own case manager. In fact, we changed that term because the kid said, we're not cases, you don't manage us. So we began to call ourselves advocates or outreach workers based on the kids' feedback to us. And for me, I find that to be a really important thing in this conversation. If we want to talk about who owns the land that Tent City is on, let's start talking about you know, the shores of the Salish Sea and the Duwamish people. Let's talk about who really owns land. And so when we talk about who has the right to occupy and why they have the right to occupy, I think that conversation can be very complicated if we're very honest about I'm in a home that was a GI built home off a GI loan in 1947 that literally was a redlined neighborhood because black people couldn't buy homes in my neighborhood. And so to compensate for that, my wife and I were afforded a lower interest rate. So when we start to talk about land possession and occupation and who has a right to it. So my deal is you create low barriers for people. Services should be easy to get into and hard to get kicked out of. I know people can't hear, but uh, Sparrow's snapping through that whole thing. And uh, <laughs> I know I'm feeling like this should be like a Pentecostal worship service because there's a few of us that need to say amen to each other. And the I mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the cool part is we all, I think we know each other's work enough to know how um, how complex it is. It isn't just as easy as throwing a sandwich at somebody or throwing a sleeping bag at somebody. We understand that complexity, but sometimes we we create complexity in the wrong places. I, I, I want to, I, if I could say one thing, I, I don't want folks to get this backwards here. I want to be really clear. Like when we talk about low barrier, when we talk about coming alongside folks um, when they're using their drugs to ensure that they're safe. Like, I don't, our systems and our programs need to be nourished. They need to be nourished. So when we talk about housing first, there's so much more work that needs to be done within these buildings. We do not have reverence for these precious folks. These housing first, most of them that we've created they work, I'm for them, but they need to be nourished. Folks need to be knocking on folks' doors. Folks need to be building community. Folks need to be saying you are needed in this world and for this world. Folks don't need to be dying with their doors closed, mm -hmm. okay? Like we need, like I wanna be crystal clear. Crystal clear there, we have a lot of work to do to nourish nourish, nourish these programs. So I just wanted to uplift that. No, and, I, and let me just say this, it, because this reminded me of one thing that I think is really important. We did a research project 
with um, uh, uh, a harm reduction, motivational internet uh, viewing uh, psychologist that was doing some work for the University of Washington. They were trying to find out if motivational interviewing and that sort of frame of harm reduction and drug treatment would work at New Horizons. And so I met with the psychologist after we were done with the study and it, talking about these ideas of low barrier and nourishing people. He said, well, to be real honest, Ron, our findings weren't too positive. I'm like, really? Tell me why. And he said, because we had a control group and we had a sample group and we really couldn't differentiate between the two. The folks that got the motivational interview didn't do any better than the folks that didn't. He said, let me tell you what the common denominator was that we really found in our research. When we were on the streets and we began to ask people, what's the most likely place you would go to or what's the known service if you're a kid on the street? Where do you go if you don't have any place else to go? 80% of the kids that we surveyed said New Horizons. That's interesting. Like, And because we were out on the street, which most people didn't want to do because street outreach, how do you how do you measure that? What are your intended outcomes? All of that stuff. It wasn't a measurable service, but we did outreach. And the first thing we found was we were known on the street. And because we were known on the street, people wanted to come to our programs and to our, our living room, as, as Sparrow put it. Second thing he says we found out in our research Folks that come to your drop-in center four or five times a month, and that's what they identified as regular attenders, once a week showing up for something, were 70% more likely to access other services that help them exit the streets. So all of a sudden, you've got this low barrier model that says, be on the street, be in relationship, invite people into services, but base it not on recruitment, not on attraction, let them come in, don't make them do an intake, just let them come in and sort of self-select. What we found was, if they know you, and they trust you, and they show up often, they will do other things that help them participate in more life-giving behaviors. And I think that's the argument for low barrier. Thank you both for sharing that. I'm going to ask a magical question that we've been asking throughout the whole season of different folks. And that is, if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing to help alleviate or eliminate homelessness, and I know there's there's one of my friends said, who's a former street youth said she would try to hustle for more wishes, but only one wish. Um, <laughs> What would you do? No barriers. You don't have to worry about capacity or funding or any of those things. You just get to wave a magic wand. You get to do the whole Aladdin thing, get to be the genie of the lamp. What would you do? So this is a little bit of a continuation of what Ron and Sparrow were saying, but most of the conversations that I have each day are about, you know, people wanting um, folks to merit or earn the, the help that we're providing. And, you know, if people just had real consequences, they would change. And so for the, the people uh, on the call, people of faith and people of goodwill, I think the reality we see is that hurt people continue to hurt other people. And, you know, punish punishing people creates people who you know punish others and it's only when people experience love and acceptance that that they blossom and love and accept others so if i had one wish it's that people would engage in real relationship 
you know, we say it like, oh, every kid in school just needs one adult who believes in them and mentors them. It's like every person who's experiencing, you know, being unsheltered or, you know, sleeping rough, it actually just takes a, another human being who will offer them mercy and compassion and restore their trust in humanity. Um, and so being that one person can be a lot. So that's why it's nice if you're one of like four or 10 people in a community. Um, but so my one wish is that people would be, um, you know, advocates and mentors and um, be there for other people who they see on the streets. I'm going to talk now and give Sparrow the last word uh, because DJ just used a word that I think is really important, compassion. And I want to differentiate that from empathy. I don't want people to be empathetic because I think empathy implies that you understand or you've experienced something similar. I think many of us who have had a roof over our heads or had systems of support or families that we could count on or community that we knew was reliable, we have no idea how terrifying. And so, so I don't want us to feel empathy because I think empathy, ah, it, it, it has its shortfalls. But compassion means that even if I don't experience the same thing as you, I want to know you. I want to, I want, I want to listen to you. I, I want to be, I want to sit <laughs> in the frustration of my misunderstanding or my not knowing with you. And so I guess the thing that I, I pray for every day is that we have communities that are compassionate. Now, I want communities that are affordable. I want communities that think about housing radically differently. I, I Seattle, Seattle is a problematic place as far as our housing prices, but all that comes back to compassionate policies, compassionate policing, compassionate ways in which we argue for our neighbors that are unhoused rather than against them. So if I had one wish, it would be that um, that we see people that are unhoused as human beings with the same hopes and dreams and the same at one point little boy or little girl that you and I were <laughs> at some point. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I want people to be compassionate. Oh, thank you for that baptism of words and soaking in it. Um, I feel like, uh, Joel, a little unfair because the question you had sent um, asked about the magic wand to alleviate human trafficking. And so that's what I had kind of sat and prayed with. Um, so I will pivot and switch gears because that is what we do. Um, I think my magic wand would be towards the end goal of having each of us in our communities be in each other's business more. 
after 20 years of spending my days with my my unhoused neighbors and coming up, doing my best, right, to come up to solutions and care, I am more convinced than ever that the core reason why we have homelessness is because we have no sense of community, no sense of care, no sense that we belong to one another, and we are all not in each other's business enough. So I, I want us to be in each other's business. That's my answer. Thank you all for that. My apologies, Sparrow. That's what happens when you cut and paste. So last week we were talking about human trafficking as one of the hydra, heads of the Hydra. And when you don't read close enough, that's what happens. So thank you for pivoting. The final question that I ask all of our guests who come on the podcast is if you have a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do in your life that keeps you centered in the middle of the work that you're doing. Um, what is it that you do that keeps you centered in the middle of all that you're working with? To tell you the truth, Joel, I need all the practices. You know, you and Jessica came down and did all these centering trainings for us. And, you know, I still carry that little thing around in my bag, um, you know, so I've got to breathe often in between the, the interactions that I'm in. Um, I try to end each day with the examine and remember that there was just beautiful things that happened and to remember to not stop feeling the, the pain that, that was also there, not run away from it. Um, I think for me, I read um, a couple of years ago, uh, I read a book, uh, it's called How to Do Nothing. And one of the things that the author, Jenny O'Dell, highlighted was a concept called inattentive blindness. And that's, you know, in essence, like our inability to see things that are right in front of us. And so I started, and I don't do it enough. And so that's why I'm grateful for this nudge. But I do try to do it um, when I wake up in the morning, look out my back window and listen for the bird song. Just that common bird song. And then I try to find that bird just to remind myself to like look, to look. Um, and then my other practice, which is of utmost importance to me is drag. It's so important to laugh. It's so important to laugh in this work. And I love drag queens and I am needy of them. And I am grateful for their existence in this world. I love that. Well, I'll start with my, uh, I have a motorcycle and uh, that uh, that keeps the demons at bay a tad bit <clears throat> uh, yeah, and it invites others, but it keeps the demons at bay. And the other thing is that, you know, and I know all of us on the screen and I just want to acknowledge this. And I know because I I get to be in relationship with a couple of DJ staff every month. And I know that death is a constant companion and an unjust and unfair companion. And at New Horizons, one of the chapters of my book I write, 
we negotiated through one year where we had 15 deaths in one year. We buried a kid every three weeks, a kid. I did more, I became ordained clergy to officiate funerals for children. And that doesn't go away, um, but it's woven into the fabric of your life. And for me, the memory of those kids isn't only tragic, but it's actually the first sign of the resurrection. So one of my practices is I remember, and I try to remember well. And I, I think the other practice is very simple. I, I literally was taught this, and I just wrote a little uh, reflection on this a couple of weeks ago in an in a online blog that we're all, that many of us participate in called the Street Psalms Community. And that is, I start my day saying, God, whatever. And I end my day saying, God, enough. Because I truly think any more complicated prayer than that, I'll probably screw up. That's my practice. Well, my friends, thank you so much for sharing what you know and sharing about the worlds that you navigate and how you navigate that and sharing your hearts, your compassion, your love for the folks that are around you. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Joel, so much. Thank you for creating this space. I feel buoyed um, in this moment and I just pray that we we keep on until there is no more bread wine. So bless you all. Yeah. Bless you all. thanks to Sparrow, DJ, and Ron for joining me and sharing their expertise and their passion with us. What a gift. I also want to thank another friend that was part of the design and planning of this season, Josh Lowers. Josh is the Director of Statewide Initiatives for Covenant House Alaska. He's also my neighbor and my friend. Thank you so much, Josh. We couldn't have done this season without you. I'll be back next week with the final episode of Season 3, The Hydra of Homelessness. Until then... I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at AnchorageUTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner. Mm-hmm.